G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And you can find out more about us by visiting anglicandolby.org.au. Today's sermon is the 1st of 2023, so a happy new year to you. And it's also part of a new series called What's Good About God, focusing on the big questions that we have about God, life, and everything. We hope you enjoy the sermon. The reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's Word. Well, today we're kicking off a new year with a new series called What's Good About God? Notice that it's not a question, it's a statement. Often preachers will put together a series on big questions people have about Christianity, but sadly they turn people off simply by th- advertising. Questions like, is God a moral monster, or does God care about suffering, can simply be answered yes and no, and people can walk away unchallenged. In this series, we're going to talk about big questions while bringing everything back to the goodness of God. God is good, friend, and there are good answers to the questions people ask about faith. Today, we're going to look at God and science. For many, God and science don't go together. It was Immanuel Kant who first divided the world into sacred and secular realms. He was a philosopher and a scientist, and although he was a Christian, he wanted to draw distinctions between the world of fact, reason, and science, and the world of morality and spirituality. Later thinkers then used Kant's language to drive a wedge between science and religion. This is why the this was the idea that I grew up with. I was coached through TV, books, and magazines to think that I had to choose between believing in science or believing in God. This was until I got to high school and realized that my brilliant physics teacher, the guy who'd written our physics textbook, 
was himself a Christian. When I got to uni, my economics lecturers made fun of Christianity and assumed that science had disproved God. But many of my mates studying actual sciences like physics, biology, and chemistry were like my physics teacher and were believers. One day, I went to a lecture given by Fritz Schaeffer, a brilliant theoretical and computational physicist who blew my mind with his discoveries. But on top of that, he blew my mind by sharing surveys done at the time which showed how many top scientists were themselves Christians. They didn't seem to think there was a wedge between science and religion. In fact, Schaefer's studies found top scientists were just as likely to believe in God as the rest of the population. After the lecture, I went down the front to thank Fritz, and he asked me if I'd bought his book. At the time, I didn't have a lot of money, and I confessed that I hadn't because I couldn't afford one. All of a sudden, a man behind me in the queue offered me his copy and got Fritz to sign the book in my name. I later learned the man who gave me his book was one of the top theologians in the country, Bruce Winter, the principal of Queensland Theological College. It was these experiences at high school and at university that taught me that science and faith aren't at odds at all. Instead, together they show us the way the world works and why. Science can tell me what my morning coffee is made up of and maybe where the ingredients come from, but it can't tell me who made it and why. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. All creation points to a creator, and that's why Christians should be scientists and why, if you love science, you should love Jesus too. We see God's goodness in the bigness of creation. From the dawn of time, women and men have looked up at the stars and been dazzled by God's vast universe. We have a 2,000-year-old record of this in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men visit the Magi, the wise men or the Magi visit from the east. Matthew 2:1 reads, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The Magi are astronomers. They'd mapped out the night sky and saw a bright star to the west. Over Christmas, I discovered that this was the planet Jupiter. What's amazing about the Magi is that they have no trouble believing that the heavens are telling them something about God. These wise men had probably also encountered the Jewish exiles in Babylon and heard the prophecies in the Bible that the God who made the universe was sending a king to the Jews whose kingdom would last forever. This is why they find their way to Jerusalem and the puppet king Herod. Through this story, Matthew is showing us how big the birth of Jesus is for human history. The claim here is that the God who set the planets in motion from the dawn of time did so to coincide with the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. The fact that there are ordered orbits to the planets and the stars shouldn't surprise us if we believe in a God of order and love 
who has big plans for his world. And friends, this is one facet of the goodness of God. He's big and his plans are big. But the fact that he comes into our world as a small baby is just as mind-blowing. Francis Collins, one of the leaders of the Human Genome Project, was a doctor going from bed to bed early in his career when he visited a patient who was very sick. She shared her faith in God with him and of how much hope it gave her, and then asked, What do you believe in, doctor? Collins had to admit he'd never really thought about it, and so he did. He looked at the evidence for Jesus' birth, death, life, resurrection, and he found them to be so strong that he found he could build his life on it. Today, Collins looks at the world through a microscope, on a microscopic level, in all its smallness, and finds it draws him not further away from God, but closer to him. And this is why it's so beautiful that in Matthew 2, we find there's a response to the Magi when they come to Jerusalem. The local wise men, the chief priests and teachers of the law, don't look at the stars. Instead, they turn to their Bibles. In particular, they, in particular, they see that the God who set the stars in motion has already told them through the prophet Micah where his rescuer will be born, in the tiny village of Bethlehem. Verse, verse 5 says, In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. On their quest to find God, the Magi experience big things and little things, and all things point them to God. But it's interesting, isn't it, that one discipline alone can't lead these men to find the king. Their study of the stars can only take them so far. This makes sense for Matthew. Before Matthew Kant, great thinkers believed that God reveals himself in two ways. There were two books of theology, if you will, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the world around us. It's maths, physics, biology, and chemistry. It's what we can see, touch, and feel. Often when trying to drive a wedge between science and God, people will tell the story of Galileo Galilei, a scientist who championed the idea that the Earth orbits the Sun rather than the other way around. This got him into trouble with the Catholic Church, but he remained a believer until he died of fever in 1642. Galileo once wrote, The laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. Galileo taught that general revelation points to God's existence. But as we see with the Magi, general revelation will only get you so far. It shows us that there is a God, but we need special revelation to know what God is like. And this is why it's so sad that Herod and the teachers of the law have the scriptures, they have the special revelation, but they're not looking for God when he comes. The Magi, on the other hand, are looking. Their sincere search for truth, looking to the book of general revelation, is completed by the book of special revelation. 
Together they lead them to Jesus. Matthew tells us that Herod was disturbed by the Magi, as was Jerusalem with him, probably because Herod was prone to murdering everyone he felt threatened by. Yet it's tragic that no one accompanies the Magi to meet the one born King of the Jews. This, I think, is why people like to drive a wedge between religion and science. There are powerful agendas at play, and there are people who use science and religion to manipulate others. When we do this, we miss out on the goodness and glory of God. And this brings us to the high point of Matthew 2.9, where we read that the wise men went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These royal servants come to a scrubby house in Bethlehem, where they meet a toddler and his mum. You'd think they'd laugh or turn home. This boy could never be the king of anything. Instead, they bow down and worship him. Worship in the Bible is something reserved for God. Not even earthly kings deserve worship. Without seeing any miracles, hearing any teachings, or seeing Jesus die and rise again, these wise men say something with their lives about who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. They then give the boys gifts. These gifts are deeply symbolic of the life Jesus will live. Gold was a gift fit for a king. Frankincense was used by priests in the temple. Myrrh is an essential oil used for embalming dead people, but also healing sick people. Jesus is high priest and king, but he is also a sacrifice given up for the healing of the nations. The fact that foreigners are some of the first people to worship Jesus should remind us that faith thrives in the most unlikely places. This passage also reminds us to give our gifts to God, no matter the cost. This week, I learned about Alin McLean, a biochemist who struggled with sexism in her laboratory, but persevered and thrived in her field. Today, she runs Science with a Mission, an organization that provides test kits for diseases like HIV and malaria in developing countries. These tests allow doctors to get the right medicine to people without expensive equipment. A Christianity Today article on her says that Alin credits her faith with determining the trajectory of her career. God, she says, is the one who gave me a passion and joy for science, but he is also the one that instilled in me a heart for his people in the poorest parts of the world. Friends, as we begin 2023, let's encourage one another to use our gifts to glorify God and bless others. The end of the passage describes how God warns the wise men not to go back to Herod, so they return via another route. Herod is livid when he hears he's been tricked, and so he has all boys to and under in the area slaughtered. But Joseph, guided by a dream 
Notice the link between Joseph in the Old Testament and Joseph, Jesus' adoptive dad in the New Testament, both being guided by dreams. And this Joseph takes his family to safety in Egypt. Friends, again, we see how people living for truth and love are so threatened by people who think of themselves as gods. Herod eventually dies, but history tells us he was so worried people would celebrate on the day of his death that he imprisoned a handful of people and told his sister Salome to kill them while he died so at least someone would weep at the time of his death. Thankfully, Salome disobeyed and released the prisoners. Herod believed neither in science or religion. He believed only in himself. Albert Einstein once wrote, Science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. Einstein famously provided the maths for the first splitting of the atom and the first nuclear bomb. Atomic bombs rely on nuclear fission. The energy released when atoms are split, releasing immense destruction and radioactive waste. Last year, though, the U.S. Department of Energy announced that they had successfully accomplished a nuclear fission reaction, a nuclear fusion reaction, sorry, which released more energy than was used to make it. Nuclear fusion happens all the time inside our sun as atoms collide and create new ones. Unlike splitting atoms, fusing them together creates immense amounts of energy without radioactive waste. And this is, I think, how we should think about God and science. We should fuse them together rather than try to tear them apart. So often we try to split science and religion and the fallout is immense and people get hurt, like with King Herod. But when fusion happens, when we use the brains God's given us for his glory and explore the outer reaches of science, technology, art and learning in a sincere search for truth, we learn more about life, joy and God. The wise men show us that when we sincerely seek truth, Jesus reveals himself to us as the way, the truth, and the life. So this year, let's make time and spend the energy to grow in relationship with God and use our gifts for his glory. Amen.